This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. Before we get started here, I'd like to mention something else. A few episodes ago, I interviewed Bert and Emma from the Simon Vey House, and they're currently in need of funds for their Catholic Worker House, and I'd like to ask listeners to consider supporting them. They provide hospitality to the unhoused in Portland, they run free educational projects, are developing an interest-free loan system, and are doing a lot of other amazing work. I'll put a link to their website in the show notes so you can learn more about them and how to donate. And I met our guest for today, Leah Smith, while I was participating in some online courses run by the Simon Bay House. So hello, Leah. I'm so glad to have you join me today. Really glad to be here. Leah works with the Orange County Catholic Worker. And could you tell us, Leah, how you first uh, came to know about the Catholic Worker? When did you first hear about it? Um, I came to know about the Catholic Worker in 1993. And kind of by happenstance, uh, kind of having a midlife uh, religious and spiritual challenges and um, looking for a church and finding a Catholic church being the only church that was open the night that I was on my search. And then finding that this little newspaper, the Peace Resistance Times in a restaurant, and they listed the Catholic worker there. And they said they were, were doing a Wednesday evening potluck and liturgy, which I had no idea what a liturgy was at that time and um, but went to the worker and here in Santa Ana, uh, Orange County, California, and found a community that was trying to live the gospel. And um, I was, again, I would have called myself spiritual, but not religious at the time, but being very challenged by a kind of a lived Catholic life um, and a life of mercy and care at the time they had been, they were involved in trying to protest the criminalization of the use of blankets uh, by unhoused folks. And I found that very powerful. And I found the community a place of, you know, kind of deep, a deep spiritual life, but also a deep um, intellectual life and a deep practice of the sacramental life. And so for me, all of that kind of married together was very challenging for me. I didn't think I could do the life they were living, inviting um, unhoused people to live at their home. And so I kept coming back. And um, what I most remember is that it was Lent at the time when I first confronted or, you know, was confronted by this life that kind of made no sense in a weird way. It only made sense if you, you know, if you kind of took the gospel seriously, which I found a very interesting um, kind of just, it just challenged me. I didn't, I didn't really, I had never seen anything like that before. And I remember thinking, um, of during, during Lent about the works of mercy that they were sharing with me that I had never heard about before and thinking how, you know, a lot of what was being um, offered in very concrete ways, a plate of food that I was having spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst, that I felt spiritually homeless. And so it was just a place which really challenged me and I'm the kind of person who likes a challenge. And so I kept coming around and, um, and subsequently um, kind of re-came back to the Catholic 
church, which my parents had left when I was six, along and my husband, same situation, and kind of dove pretty deep and hard into um, our life as uh, as Catholics and um, into the life of the worker. And then came here to live actually in 1997 and really were, was not planning to do it as a long-term thing, came basically because the community that was here was not able to sustain a life here and really came as, just to keep it going. And, and then trying to live the life of being here was such a challenging, beautiful, crazy, awesome experience that I can remember actually nine months to the day of my coming here being so filled with gratitude for the opportunity to be here. It was actually on All Saints Day that um, decided to stay for like another year and then stay for five years. And, and then, and now it's, you know, 25 years. So I think that's, you know, this kind of this uh, life that presents this opportunity to live in a certain way, which is both a challenge and a, and a deep dive into um, a life of in integrity with what I believe as a Catholic Christian. Um, for me, that's what has been, um, has created this beautiful life that I'm so excited to be able to continue to be involved with. That's kind of amazing, you know, that, uh, that you really just didn't have that much connection or experience with the Catholic Church. And, you know, your first experience with it was this Catholic worker way of life, you know, talk about uh, diving into the deep end. <laughs> yeah, that's really amazing. <laughs> you know, I, um, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, so you say that you know, your parents left when you were six, so you didn't really have that much uh, mm -mm. experience of the Catholic church as an adult then. No, in fact, um, they did go to a Methodist church. So one of the gifts of that was a lot of scripture. Um, but Dwight, my husband, didn't even have that. His parents became Unitarians. And so, um, you know, it, I do remember, and I think this probably is one of the reasons that I, um, I felt like an, a, um, I don't know, kind of like an echo being here. I can remember really loving the, the story of the Good Samaritan and, you know, the idea of loving God with all your heart also being really a, um, substantial for me as a, when I was, when I was going to Sunday school, as they called it, but also, um, this was in the, the sixties and there was a project that was done through the Methodist church called the box project, which we did where we were connected with, a, a family in Mississippi and we would, we would send letters and, and, and pack boxes of things to them for like holidays and, and various supplies and things to them. And I can remember sitting on the stairs of my house when one of those boxes was, or one of the letters was returned and really being conscious of this connection to a group of people who, who really were struggling. This was during the civil rights movement, obviously. And I think that that had an effect too. So I think, um, you know, the never underestimate the power of scripture on young folks, kids to you know, really connect deeply, because I do think that that informed my being here in ways that and coming back to certainly coming back to my Catholic faith. Um, what is also interesting, Malcolm, is that 
if you had asked me at age 15, 16, even though I had been in the Methodist church for, you know, those, some of those years, if you had asked me what religious faith I was, you know, I was, I would have said Catholic, which is so weird when I think back now, I, I, I don't know where that comes from, but, but that is what I always considered my faith. And so I wonder too, you know, that um, we talk about that sometimes that you're kind of a cultural Catholic. And even though I didn't like live in the cultural part of my life, um, I did, you know, somehow it, it, that's what kind of was in my brain. And so I think in some ways when this crisis came upon me, um, which actually came interestingly, since we talk about with this podcast, poverty, voluntary poverty, it came the year that I made more money than my dad or that I knew that my dad made when I, and I was the sales rep, I sold textbooks that year. And it was, it was a serious crisis of like, what, this doesn't mean anything. Like, what am I doing with my life? And I really didn't have a very good answer. And I think that that also was, there was an opening, um, you know, in my heart, maybe, you know, I guess in my soul as well for something which I felt had some integrity in the world. And you know, a wanting to be a person who does good. And, um, and in some way, I guess you'd even say a little bit heroic, even though I don't think of myself in those terms. Now, I think that that might have been part of it. And I certainly didn't think making money in the world was a was it after having done it, you know, I would have thought that at the time. But that wasn't what it was. And so finding the worker was just like, so exciting because it seems so real. I can remember saying to somebody that it feels, I feel like the wiz, in the Wizard of Oz, like I had lived this life, it was in black and white before, and all of a sudden my world's in color. <laughs> and, and it felt, seriously felt that way to me. Um, there was so much to learn and go deep into, and um, I was constantly being challenged. Um, like everything I thought about myself was being challenged. Um, everything I really thought about the world was being given new context and, you know, made real in a new way. I, I really, I, I really am grateful for that. And I also think in some ways that that did, you know, when I look at the church, even, I do still look at it through the lens of the worker, which is interesting. So that's different than many people would have where they would have come from the other direction, so to speak. When I think of sacramentality, just as an example, I think about it from the lens of, of the table at the, at the house and sharing a meal with somebody from, you know, unhoused or um, cooking food for people who might not have any Um, and how the sacramentality of finding God, God present in that breaking of bread rather than the other way, even though I understand the other way um, there's a concreteness to that for me that speaks to God's presence, you know, the real presence of Christ in, um, you know, that you might have seen in the Emmaus story, right? Mm-hmm. That seems very, very palpable to me here. Um, and so that kind of, you know, going from the gospel to life and life to the gospel that they talk about uh, for, for us third order Franciscans, that's very real for me um, in the way that I've lived, been able to live my life. And I think that partly comes from this, you know, immersion in this crazy life of the catholic worker well, that's interesting and actually the the road to emmaus might be one of my very favorite of all the gospel stories 
there's something well it's funny for one thing it's yeah. it's hilariously <laughs> funny actually when he's yeah. saying uh you know he says what kind of things have been happening he says <laughs> exactly but it's also it's just it's in one sense so so common you know this this chance encounter of mm-hmm. a stranger on the road who is Christ who they were looking for but didn't recognize and and I think too you know, I was just thinking about your story you know that chance encounter with that you know uh newspaper at the back of the church right right um just these odd little ways that we find God in our lives. I know for me, certainly like I was, you know, perhaps the more typical route of finding out about the Catholic worker. Uh, you know, I have been a Catholic for many years before I'd ever heard of such a thing. And some friends of mine at a book club wanted to read some of Dorothy Day's essays. So mm. I mm-hmm. learned about the Catholic worker. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it must be a very different experience, you know, coming to look on the Catholic church from that perspective. And also, you know, it's, I find it kind of humorous too, that, you know, you joined this thing and then ended up sort of caretaking it, you know, it's like, uh, mm-hmm. suddenly, mm-hmm. uh, you're like, this is so great. It's like, well, here, take it. You know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it was funny because, um, I remember we sat down they gave us, um, there was some, you know, it was January when we moved in here and, um, there was, I remember there were 10, there was $10,000 in the bank. Uh, the bank account. So they wrote us a check for the 10,000. Um, and we just opened it so we could open a new account. And then we went to meet the landlord and the rent was like 1500 or $1,600 a month. And I thought, Ooh, that's not a lot, you know, that's not going to last <laughs> that 10,000. Cause it was, you know, right at the, after the biggest you know time when people might send donations. And um, at the time I had, I had a job coordinating jail ministry for the diocese here and um which is a whole different story but um i was working so i was working when we moved in here um doing that work and you know had i not been i don't you know we might not have financially been able to to do it it was true precarity at that time and i think you know it's just so odd you know that you're you just take on these things like here it was literally here um you know, don't mess it up kind of thing. Um, and we had no idea what we were doing. Absolutely none. Um, interestingly and scarily enough, um, you know, a lot of what people know or think about about the Catholic worker are meals, which of course we wanted to continue to do. We made a decision early on. We wouldn't change anything for a year, whatever was going on before we would do exactly the same thing for a year before we thought we knew what we were doing. Cause we didn't think we knew what we were doing. Um, and so there were three meals a week that needed to be done. And neither my husband nor I know anything about how to cook. I mean, it's not, <laughs> and now we might, but at the time it really, really was scary. And thank God for some people that just took pity on us and said, yeah, we'll come in and help you because we would not the first, and the first week that we were here, Dwight left to go on a retreat, which was, so I was here all by myself. And so I had to cook that first meal. And I, I remember that. I mean, this is kind of a side story, but, um, you know, I call my mom and I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? And she said, turkey soup. So I think this is how I cooked them. I took two, t- took a turkey, um, two pots, two turkeys, frozen, threw them in the pot, boiled the heck out of them. Um, 
you know, then, and then tried to debone it. I mean, it was just this complete madhouse. But I finally got something, which probably was pretty gross, but I did get something. And um, that, that day I decided I would never try to be the one to cook any, again. Um, I would have somebody help me and I would become a, a, you know, a student of somebody else. But I had nothing but this horrible soup. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I forgot bread. I don't even have bread. And I, the words hadn't even left my mouth before there was a knock on the door. I go to the door and here's this guy saying, you know, have this bread. Do you need it? And I think I just remember thinking, okay, you heard that when that really was a prayer of desperation, um, which ha, I, I will say has been this, there many of the people who've come here, you know, they will just say, be careful what you ask for here. Cause sometimes things like that happen, um, which I do think is really true. Um, but I think that there is always this sense of like being willing to admit you know, that you don't know what you're doing. Um, and that I do think has been one of the greatest lessons of being here and being, being a, at the Catholic worker is this, the world seems to give us such a desire for both certainty and feeling, you know, like we, we have to kind of grab without both hands because there's scarcity and that, um, you know, you have to put out there that, you know, and the, the most important thing I've learned here is, um, no, not really. Um, it's really that moment, the moments of that, like knowing you don't know, that the grace just pours down. Um, the moment, the places where I feel the least competent are usually the places where I've, I'm being given these opportunities for grace. Um, and certainly that's true in the c encounters with the folks that I'm, I meet the most important thing I learned being here was to was to name my own limitations to be really clear about that which from just my personality would have been to not name that and I think that all comes from these moments of awareness and being placed in these situations which were really beyond me to be honest I mean I didn't know what mm -hmm. I was doing I still don't know what I'm doing but I really didn't know anything about what I was doing when I showed up here Right. And I think that that's one thing, you know, as I've been interviewing community leaders and community members, I think that's one of the really important things about community is that it actually makes human weaknesses apparent. And that mm -hmm. a community which tries by contrast to, it's like a community can try to build itself on human strength. Mm -hmm. And that community is going to fail dramatically something mm -hmm. really terrible is probably going to happen to them so often when people come to try and find or join a community they're imagining a place where everything will be perfect where they can leave all the problems of the world behind and as i've been talking to all these people what struck me is that actually a, a community is a place where the problems can be brought out into the open so mm -hmm. that god's mercy can be shown in and through all that weakness Mm -hmm. um, because in one of my friends put it that, you know, when, when you're living with someone else, you're, you're not going to be able to keep up, you know, kind of a good act all the time. You know, all of, all of your inherent uh, weaknesses will be made apparent. And then also that's the same thing when, you know, like trusting God, realizing that you don't have what it takes, whether it's bread for the meal or anything else. And that will show up. I remember a friend who went and uh, worked in, 
Costa Rica as a missionary, a family missionary. So he took his family and went and joined this project in Costa Rica. And he was talking about how when you do that, then suddenly the Holy Spirit shows up. Mm -hmm. And in those kind of situations where, you know, you just don't know what you're doing. You know, he's told, you know, crazy stories about driving a, a rickety vehicle along dirt back roads and not really being sure where he was. And, you know, but in those kind of moments, God comes through. And I think that's, you know, when you, when you were talking about what attracted you to the worker, you know, the gospel contains such a beautiful message of, you know, dependence on God and trust in one another and all these beautiful things. And so often I think Christians just treat them as a bunch of, you know, beautiful sayings and then live, you know, we live much as anyone else. Yeah. But, you know, the, the gospel has to be lived out to be made concrete. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I find to be so beautiful about uh, Catholic worker and other communities of a similar type is that they're really trying to just take the gospel and say, what would this look like lived out <laughs> and then see what happens. Yeah. yeah and lived out within I mean, knowing our own particularity of, of, you know, things we bring. Right. I mean, that's why every house is very different. And I think why Dorothy Day was insistent on that is that, you know, you bring, you really do bring who you are. You can try to pretend you're Dorothy Day, but you're not. And so you're going to be who you are. And it, you know, in the ways in which, as you, as you said, you know, our human strength, I think also our human desire to emulate somebody when we, that artificiality, I mean, aside from Christ, I don't think that we're supposed to, you know, try pretend we're somebody else. I mean, we should strive to be something more than our, than our small selves, I guess you could say, but we are still going to be obvious who we are. I, I mean, I think that was one of the first things that was startling to me, not so, I mean, it shouldn't have been surprising, but I think in some ways it was, was how transparent my life and who I really was, you know, kept being, it would, it would be brought up, you know, people would talk about it, you know, and, you know, you could, and it was that having to go from being, you know, allowing yourself to be known, really, which, you know, that happens in marriage, too. I mean, it's like this being known thing. Um but also not combining that with the with the stuff that goes that can go sideways like gossiping or judging or um, allowing you know my own fear to interfere then with the reality of who I was right that or and what needed to be healed in me you know the places where I needed to be you know aware that I needed to put love because somehow I had put something else there in the past out of my own desire to be accepted or out of pain, out of, you know, things that had happened in my past. But it was like, I couldn't ignore it as easily too. I mean, I think one of the challenges of community, as you say, is like people come with this idealized idea, but who, what ends up happening is kind of the weird stuff of who you are is not hideable. Um, and hopefully the community can hold that with you while you wrestle with that, while you acknowledge it, while you, you know, seek healing for it, while you um, live together um, and notice how perhaps this thing that maybe even you valued in yourself 
really creates pain for other people or um, way, things that you think this is just who I am ends up being, no, it's really not who you are. That's, you know, been a strategy. Um, you know, where, one of the ways you've avoided being the person God really ha- is calling you to be. Um, I think that has been the challenge and the beauty of community, especially the painful stuff of community life, you know, um, the times of disappointment, the times of frustration, the times where, um, you know, of disagreement. For me, one of the the most interesting pieces of community was, you know, when we had, we we went through this period where we decided we were going to be, you know, really weird. And um, we did what we called radical hospitality, which literally meant we didn't say no to people. People could come to the door and ask to stay. And we said, yes. And we have, uh, you know, a, a, the property, it's an old property in, in downtown Santa Ana. And so it's, it's got, you know, a fairly large footprint of property, but the house itself isn't huge. Um, but we just kept taking people in and, you know, my husband, we, and we had our landlord said, Oh, you know, you can only have 15 people. And then after the house was purchased um, and we were, you know, we had a mortgage, we were paying that mortgage off. Um, we, Dwight just said, well, let's just take some more people. We're, we can do what we want now, right? Okay. So, you know, there were 30 people, some people staying inside, some people sleeping in the yard. And then there were like 60 people. And then there was like <laughs> 120 people. And, you know, one night, the night, the most we ever had stay here was 156 people and 70 kids. It was, let me just wow. say, it was insanity. Um, and one of the things that was weird about that time, I mean, there's a lot, but one of the things that was weird is when we would have a disagreement about a guest behavior or something that was going on, we needed to like deal with it. One of the things that um, we decided um, amongst the community members at the time was that the person who liked them the most like the one if there was a person who really was an advocate for that person in the community that that person would take the opposite they would try to you know talk about like what was being challenging and that the person who had the most frustration had to find the best things about that particular guest and then we would have this dialogue and it didn't always work you know because everybody kind of knew what we were dealing with but it it was a, such an interesting place of like forcing us outside our comfort zone, outside those places, those we would always go to. Um, and I think that that was really, um, you know, having to just interact with a lot of other people in a very uncontrolled situation where things were constantly weird, really stirred up for everybody, both, you know, you again, you couldn't hide. If you were going to be rigid about stuff, it was going to come out. If you were always going to say yes to people, it was going to come out. If you, you know, weren't, if you were a good listener, it was going to come out. So all these things, I think that's what I think one of the benefits of both community and being in places that don't allow you to be completely comfortable, um, mm-hmm. really give that possibility to us. And it can take time. I think, for me, at least, it's taken a lot of time. I had a, I like to think about it as kind of like, I don't know, when I was a kid, we had one of these rock polisher things where it would like turn around, you know, you throw mm-hmm. gra- gravel in it and turn it around. Eventually, you know, what looked kind of 
yucky when you put it in there was a beautiful thing. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, that's really what God is inviting us to is like by all those encounters, what needs to go can go. Um, and I feel like that's been the, particularly in those years, um, that was a lot of what was going, what was happening, even though it felt like I was just in this churning mess for a number of those, of those years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember someone said that, uh, community acts like sandpaper. And if, Mm -hmm. if you show up, uh, expecting to get away from the the sandpaper effect of daily interactions in the world, uh, boy, you're going to be, you know, surprised when you, you show up at at whatever kind of community setting you're going to be at. But, uh, yeah. Uh, so how many people do you have staying at the house uh, nowadays? We don't have very many because of COVID right now. We we had about 20 when COVID started, and we, okay. we we let people kind of stay through that. And we are actually in a process of kind of reassessing what we think our community at large needs from us, what the Catholic community needs from us right now. Um, you know, one of the things that, we've been, we've participated in is, you know, looking at systemic change. And one of those has been related to literally lawsuits against the cities in this area, which have been very dilatory on providing services for folks who find themselves unhoused. And so due to that, there's been a substantial increase. I mean, literally going from 200 to, I don't know, probably 1800 now um, beds that are available. Um, and so it's been really a challenge to think about how not to be perceived as a shelter, but rather um, as home. Um, and I find that to be um, I'm having to turn off kind of that idea on the outside um, and open up something that's a little bit more intimate. Uh, it feels more authentic anyway to the worker, even though I don't think what we were doing was wrong at the time because it was kind of like a public protest, I guess, in many ways. Um, uh, Because we kept saying, if there's another place for people, you can take them, but what you can't do is take them out of our yard and throw them in the street, right? They need to be safe, right? right? So that was its own public protest. But if there are places, it's a different question of what we need to do. And so I don't, I don't know. Actually, we're just in this process of discerning what is the, what is the next step. I have a few guests here now, but um, it's not quite the same as it was because I'm not really doing a lot of open door stuff at the moment. It's just me. My, hus- my husband's got some disabilities, so it's a little more challenging than it was to a few years back. You know, one thing that, that I was noticing in what you said about uh, how every Catholic worker house is different and you know, none of us are going to be Dorothy Day, even though we want, might want to, um, I think that was actually one of Dorothy's wisest decisions when she basically said that anyone could start a Catholic worker. They could look like anything. She wasn't going to try and, you know, police the boundaries of this movement and, you know, control everything from the top because, um, you know, that like over and over again, especially in the modern world, it seems like some, you know, charismatic kind of leader has a great idea that's working really well on the ground in their local area. And then they like trademark it and try to replicate exact carbon copies of it all over the place. And it turns into either just kind of a very uh, shallow bureaucratic organization or a nasty kind of cult. And, um, you know, when I'm talking about community, this is one of the things that I try and warn people about, although, you know, we need community 
uh, that's not what we need. We don't need, um, you know, somebody's idea being replicated in, you know, a thousand locations around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, I don't know, I, myself, I'm a bit of a controlling temperament mm-hmm. and, uh, I can easily see like the temptation in that mm-hmm. to like, want to want to keep a hold of something you've done and, yeah. um, just suddenly reflecting on kind of the saintliness that would have been needed to just say, you know, we're not going to be an organization. We're not going to be a movement. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that part of that is just connected to the fact that Peter and Dorothy saw what they're doing is just trying to live out the gospel. It's like they were 2000 years too late to trademark it. (laughs) It was, um, (laughs) it was, it was inherently free. It was like, it was, it was all there for anyone who wanted to do it. It was just that they became known for uh, doing it. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think one of the challenges, really big challenge today that they didn't face in quite the same way um, is this idea of branding as well. I mean, both the sense that you should create a kind of a, these benevolent organizations and that people want you to. I, I, I mean, over the years, I can't tell you how many people have said, we'll buy this for you and you guys can go do this and we'll start this organization, blah, blah, blah. And I kept telling them, no, you know, one house is more than enough. It's too big as it is. You know, um, this is, it should be small. Everything needs to be small. It needs to be human scaled. And um, I don't, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to start a, a brand. And I think especially in, in mo- the modern times where there's so much media attention, just resisting that is extremely challenging. And um, because it gets in my, it can get in my own head then of that. That's what I'm preserving. I'm not preserving m- mercy. I'm preserving a brand. That doesn't make, I mean, you know, when you think about it from a gospel perspective, it doesn't make sense. Um, and I think that's been, you know, kind of constantly trying to keep an eye on that. And in, you know, in some ways for me, COVID has been a, a blessing, you know, because it's provided this spaciousness to really almost like in that, in that restarting, really rethinking, trying to get back to the root of what this particular community needs to speak about in this time, in 2022, not in 1987 when it started, but today, and to not let just that old stuff be enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that each house has that opportunity, but it's, I think, especially for as me as an older woman um, in the movement, I think that there is also that um, challenge to to legacy in a weird way, like having to resist that, like, this house is God's place. And if God has a purpose for it, it will be apparent. Um, and if God ha- needs people for it, like when Dwight and I were sort of plucked out of nowhere, it will be made apparent. And I don't have to worry about that. And if it dies, then there's that energy is going somewhere where it needs to be. Maybe that's, you know, I, I don't have to hold on to its existence in the future as it doesn't say anything about me. It only says something about, you know, what God feels is needed in this time and place. And so um, that's the, I think that's the problem that it gets to be that, you know, we are infected by this idea that, that if we can do something big, if we can do something flashy, if we can do something other Mm -hmm. people even think is right and good, um, 
you know, and the way they think we should do it, that that's what we should be striving for, looking for acceptance, um, looking for support even. Um, and I think that that's hard to resist. And um, I'm not saying I haven't succumbed to it at times. Um, but it's, but it, you know, as I'm here longer, it's more and more apparent that when it, as an example, when people come here, one of the, you know, somebody new showing up wants to know what, what we do. One of the first questions that the, or first things they ask about is, so how do you get people on their feet? Do you have any success stories? Always they ask that question. And I tell them, I'm not here to get them on their feet. I'm here to remind them that they are a child of God. I'm here to remind them of where the, you know, of their heart. I'm here to love them. And if by that something happens in their life that leads them to a different kind of situation, that's fine. But they are not broken just because they don't have a place to live. They're Society might have broken things for them. I'm broken too, but I'm not here to fix people. I'm here to love them. That's hard enough. Um, yeah. You know, and um, I am resisting this idea that people have to be productive in a particular way or that it matters if we serve 500 meals or five. You know, that is very, to me, that's extremely countercultural. Um, mm. Because it says that the person doesn't have to have a, a, a value that somebody can can monetize. They can just be valuable because they are. That, I do think, is very fundamental to the Christian life, but also very hard in, a, in the culture we live in, you know, to, to make sense to people. Yeah, the... the obsession with metrics right like yeah. that, that success comes from like a certain metric and the bigger the better uh th that more of something it's like you know we served twenty thousand meals this month right. or whatever and by the way there's nothing wrong obviously if someone's called to serve twenty thousand right. meals but like the that that's the definition of success that somehow your success comes from something you can quantify we're obsessed with numbers in the modern world and yeah. by that metric you know when when christ died and rose and ascended into heaven his movement wasn't really that impressive i was once told by someone that every group today thinks that they have to change the world mm -hmm. to be valid mm -hmm. and um and that's not that's not so and in fact that kind of mentality i was told will fundamentally distort whatever the community was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And and I liked what you said about not feeling like you had to hold on to uh, the community itself even. I mean, like that's another kind of poverty, I guess, to feel mm -hmm. like you wouldn't, um, you know, it's one of the most remarkable things in the lives of the saints. I mean, many of them did found things. Mm -hmm. But that um, one of their tests was that like when, it looked like something was going to go wrong and the community was going to be destroyed that they would just, you know, submit that they mm -hmm. weren't, mm -hmm. they weren't attached even to such great things. Um, oh, I, I was just recently reading um, uh, Cardinal Francis uh, Nugent van Thuan, uh, his um, five loaves and two fish. And he was a, a Vietnamese archbishop, very successful by all these metrics he had hundreds of seminarians in his seminary. He had all these great projects he was doing for the Lord. And then the communists took over and he ended up in solitary confinement for, I think it was 15 years, mm -hmm. unable to do anything for his people, unable to shepherd his flock. 
And, you know, he prayed to God, you know, what is the point of all this? I was working for you. And what he finally heard was that God was asking him, do you love me or do you love my works? That would be, that would be a really hard test. I mean, it's yeah. a good thing. It's like God's glad that we want to serve him, but ultimately he doesn't need us. Right. Um, right. I, I like, uh, I like the, uh, Father uh, Simon Tugwell said that we can we can begin to think if we aren't careful that God is lucky to have such very good good and productive servants <laughs> as we are, um, <laughs> uh, and, and that's that's like that is the the opposite of the Beatitudes, the opposite uh-huh. of poverty, yeah. um, and and yet and yet you know if if God gives abundantly to some kind of success that can even be seen in worldly matters. Well and great, so long as that doesn't become the the root. It's it's so difficult to hold that balance, you know. It's so hard. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think that like at least a desire for like a voluntary poverty, if we want to just use that phrase. I mean, I think it's a like having a desire for that at least invites a conversation about about that holding, about things you hold, or things you have, things you hold, things you have um, that you consider even sometimes necessary. I mean, it certainly should discern between craving and necessity, but it really kind of hones that vision of what is really necessary, right? Um, Because you realize that, you know, for like for me, like the house being here and doing, you know, having um, purpose, I guess you could say even, um, it's more necessary to me because God's, got a bigger vision than than that Mm -hmm. and and that I might even be holding it back you know from what God wants to do because I'm so wrapped up in what I need to have happening um that really to to have that submission and say you know you know let me know if I'm supposed to be you know moving another direction or if I'm supposed to be leaving even you know make it clear uh let me know because um, I'm kind of blind here. I'm flying blind because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just a human person. So I'm just going to do the best I can. I'm going to love the best I can. I'm going to do mercy the best I can. Um, this is all yours anyway. Um, that, that's helpful, but it's also hard. And I don't think if you are also concerned in ways that I would consider not, like even if you think you're doing voluntary simplicity instead of voluntary poverty, I think that makes it a little bit more difficult because I think you're just not as open to the idea that you will be poor too, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Right. Um, it just is, there's an element of freedom to let God intervene that at least has been my experience that, you know, um, do I want God to intervene or not? Yeah, I think quite often, you know, if we were honest with ourselves, we don't want him to intervene because right. we, don't, we ultimately don't like surprises, you know? No. no. Surprises are mean we're not in control, even good surprises. Um, right. I, I was recently talking with someone about how I think, you know, a lot of people, they want the story of the church to be, you know, a nicely finished novel that they've just finished reading when really we're, you know, probably somewhere in chapter two. And we don't, right. we don't know what's going to happen in chapter mm-hmm. three. Mm-mm. And that means that we're not like we can't control it. And, you know, this is, you know, speaking about, you know, like the danger of like 
being an institution, all these different forms of wealth that the modern world is so attracted to, being able to quantify things, being able to organize things. Um, this is actually one of the tensions of this podcast project and that I always try and remind people of is that I can only interview communities that have a web presence that mm. I thought I can find them. Whereas like, it, it's not that bad. I mean, I've interviewed many wonderful communities, but at the same time to not allow that to skew the perceptions that people would think, well, I'm not a community unless I have a name and a mm-hmm. web page and a mm-hmm. mission statement and at least, you know, half a dozen volunteers that, you know, community is such a very basic and natural thing and that it should be growing up, you know, um, spontaneously people who would not even think of themselves as having an intentional community. Right. The idea that the, you know, like the two words intentional community are actually kind of at odds with one another or should be in a healthy um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a healthy society they would not be intentional community in that sense um and and that's that leads to something that i you've talked to me before about and that i wanted to hear about here on on the podcast uh you were saying that you feel that almost there should be a catholic worker third order if that's the right Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. terminology can you explain why you would think that would be uh necessary or desirable well, I think that kind of like, um, I mean, my experience being here is that over the years, I have, I, I in the beginning felt that anybody who wasn't living at, at a Catholic worker house and making, you know, living with certain folks and doing door hospitality as just a couple of examples, really couldn't understand what it meant to do a Catholic worker kind of thing. But over as time has passed, I've become less sure of that because I think it's more a disposition always than, as you, as you were saying earlier, it's the works, if you get caught up in the idea of the counting of the works or even sometimes the, you know, the kind comparison that um, it ends up just being a different kind of hierarchy. And I was feeling very much that people who lived um, in houses, ha- uh, there was a little bit of superiority stuff that we could buy ourselves into, whether it was our intention or not. And I was looking around at the people who were doing works of mercy in various ways around me. And this is, was particularly um, made particular sense to me after the pandemic began, when a lot of people were doing um going out and doing serving of folks who were on the street or putting together local um, food pantries in their neighborhoods who were really not, you know, I mean, who I thought had the same desire and, but didn't have a kind of a context to talk about the, the, what they were, what they were um, feeling inclined to do in my opinion by God. And so one of the things I thought about is, you know, not every person can live at a house. There's certain, frankly, certain privilege that you almost have to have because you're not going to be getting, you know, paid money like you might if you worked at a big nonprofit. You're, you know, you're, you may not be able to live in a certain situation because you might have a disability or you might be, um, you might have children for whom that might not be uh, the right setting, or you might have a, a spouse for whom that's not their particular inclination. And should they be shut out 
from trying to kind of look at the Catholic worker and all of the all of the practices and you know theological reflection that's gone on over almost you know 90 years should that be something they just can't do kind of like you know you know we're going to say you can't come in this door you could come and you know serve a few meals but actually sort of see your life as lived in this particular way you can't do that unless you happen to live at a house and i have come to the conclusion for myself that that is just not the way that i think god intended that god wants this to be more prevalent for example, this call to voluntary poverty, I, I do think that there's something that could be would be very um, uh, helpful in people reflecting on their lives in that way. But where do they get that? They're not going to, you know, it's not that it's not in the gospel, because I think the Catholic workers just say, oh, let's just live the gospel. But who gives people permission to do that in the culture and have and have ways of sort of making, um, you know, a a, a sense set of interior promises that that's the kind of life they want to live. And I think that there's, a, again, like I feel found for myself, there was something heroic in making even the attempt, which I did do for four years prior to actually moving into the house. And I think that I, you know, asking myself, how can I live a life doing, you know, doing and, and caring about people and, bringing mercy. How could I be a person of mercy? Well, I mean, Malcolm, are, aren't we all called to that? Yep. But doesn't it help to have a group of people you can talk about it with? Yep. Mm -hmm. Doesn't it help to have a bunch of people who you're praying regularly with? Yep. Um, I, and so I, that's kind of the thing that has been, you know, um, I've been thinking a lot about. And add to that, you know, my husband being more disabled than he was certainly than when we first came here, you know, he has some, some issues that make it more challenging. And so, you know, I, I think that there's also bringing, asking those folks for whom certain kinds of things that, be, you know, the Catholic worker is often perceived as something that requires a lot of physicality, you know, picking up big pots of soup and, um, you know, having, um, inter living with and interacting with guests who, you know, might be younger and stronger than you. Um, and so I think I've been thinking about all those kinds of things as maybe there's a need for something where people who are going to live in the world, but live, want to live in the world in this different way with this kind of, uh, different kind of lens, like putting on glasses and you see it, the world in a new way. And, um, that you want to live that way in the world that people would ask why you're doing it. To me, that's the question, like, why would you be doing this um, invites them to deeper reflection on the gospel and, and the Catholic worker in particular, and its own unique sets of visions about that. I don't know if that was clear, but because it's still kind of being formed in my mind, too. Mm -hmm. I, I think it, it does make sense. I like what you said about giving them permission, because like it should be enough if someone was living a life of poverty and hospitality and radical community in, in the sense of real self-giving love, it should be enough to say when people ask why you're doing this or what you're about to say that, that one's a Christian. Right. But since the world, alas, knows that not all <laughs> Christians live that way, right. um, 
there has to be yeah something and i mean like that's what the third orders typically did that's why francis originally founded his third order to give a sort of legitimacy to people who are going to refuse to use violence refuse to live their lives in pursuit of wealth and then also you know one thing i was thinking about is uh, i was thinking about the fact that one of only two sermons I ever heard from the pulpit on voluntary poverty was given by a Franciscan, of course. Mm -hmm. The problem is, I think, is that um, people are quick to say, well, he's a Franciscan, so of course he says that. Or you could fill in, you know, these people are Catholic workers, so of course they do that, and that's nice. But this is not ever something I could do. They, because they perhaps rightly see that they're not called to be a Franciscan or to live in a Catholic worker house. Right. And therefore they feel that, you know, all the church has to offer them is a fairly mundane, um, you know, living out of the 10 commandments showing up on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Um, and to people, but people are people, as you said at the beginning, people want something more than that. Yeah. They want something authentic, something that really, they intuit that the Christian life should not look uh, just like, you know, day-to-day life in the modern world, but they don't know how to go about it. And I mean, this is, this in one sense is why I started this whole podcast project, that there's this great need and desire for something more. And I was one of those people looking yeah. And I had all these questions and no answers. And so I started a podcast to try to, you know, find the people with the answers. <laughs> or more questions. <laughs> well, or more questions, right? At least, <laughs> at least, at least to find, well, in that sense, yes, to find people who, to, to realize that other people are also asking the questions. Yeah. That, you know, each of us aren't the only people who have been thinking this way. And, and there's something very very validating in just that. And yeah. I've, I've more and more come to realize like how much our modern just assumption of individualism colors just even the way we look at the gospel. It's like, you mm-hmm. know, Christ was living in a communal culture. That's all there was back then. And he certainly didn't just come to like say, all right, here's a set of you know moral precepts and individuals can just go and, and do them because they can't. Mm-hmm. An individual can't really live out the gospel fully by themselves and that's why he founded a church and that's i mean obviously the church is more than that but you know any like sage or teacher would have started a little group a little school in which Mm -hmm. masters taught disciples in which you could become part of a community a way of life that you know morality and spirituality were not individual adventures as they've become in the modern world So, you know, thinking through all this, I really see what you're saying about the need to take what the Catholic worker has to offer and make it more accessible to people for whom like the classic. And, and, you know, I think especially, you know, like what Peter Marin thought he wanted to change, uh, you know, change the world in the sense of offering people a way to rediscover the gospel and put it into practice. And certainly I don't think he would have been content with you know, just starting some Catholic worker houses. He wanted so much more. He envisioned so much more for what could be. So I think Mm -hmm. this is actually very much in the, in the original spirit of the thing too. Yeah, I totally agree. I, and I think that, you know, I think back to the idea of the Christ room, 
right? Which really was very fundamental in the original movement was really not for a big house per se. That partly happened because that's what they, you know, that's kind of how it fell into place. But, um, you know, in the times when just people start showing up asking, can you help me? Right. Um, but the idea that in, you know, that people would know people that needed, needed some tenderness. And so you say, come and stay at my house. Right. Um, not that, you know, and even being here, I will say that, you know, when we have a lot of people, it was very hard to be present with tenderness in the way that I feel like I can do more now that I have fewer people. And so I wonder if in some ways, you know, Peter's original vision really was to have it not be concentrated, um, but rather to be, you know, dispersed little, little seeds, little lights everywhere will, you know, that illumination will be sufficient, but that we need each other to give ourselves courage to know that we're not crazy when the world says this isn't enough to know that it is enough. So, mm -hmm. you know, that has really been, you know, super important to me. And I think kind of what you're saying that per giving people permission, I, I think in some ways, one of the challenges of Christianity as it's come down to us is that it really has been, um, becomes a religion of what is no, what, what you don't do, what is, what you say no to. And for me, at least, and in being here, you know, this idea of what am I assenting to? Like, what is God pulling out of me? Where is the yes um, in my relation? Where's that openness in my relationship with God, that, that channel, that the spirit, where the spirit is, you know, enlivening me and firing me to, um, to this grand yes of this is how I am to live. I feel like that's part of the difference of what I, I feel like ha can happen. And, you know, if people coming to a Catholic worker house is I could never do that. That's just a different kind of no. <laughs> it's a different kind of special. This, this is the special and I'm not good enough. And I don't think that's what, what we're invited to. I think we're invited to set the fires, you know, set it on fire. Um, it might be a little thing, but um, set people on fire and, and maybe never hear from them again as they go into their own little situation and keep that happening. So I think to me, I don't, I, on the one hand, I don't want to keep it, you know, in some kind of special box that only special people have a chance to be around, which is, I think what can happen. And I also, um, feel like wanting to give people permission to not, uh, to, you know, have some sense of support, as you say, I mean, that's the idea of church, right? Some sense of support of what can, you know, how they can open themselves to it more and more and more, go deeper and deeper and deeper into it, um, be expansive with it. I feel like that's the other aspect to it and not to feel so, tied into a particularity that we feel like somebody's not okay because this particularity isn't the way we would have done it. Um, you know, that I think is a big challenge um, to give a little bit of openness to it and let the spirit take care of the details a little bit. Yes. And that, you know, the, the this is maybe a good note to wrap up on because yes, the Christ room idea, which is so, 
in one sense, so fundamental, the sharing of hospitality with a brother or a sister in Christ, and at the same time, has become so challenging in the modern world, something that only mm-hmm. institutions do. But mm-hmm. I remember, I think it was Basil the Great, it was one of the church fathers, and I'm pretty sure it was Basil the Great, preaching a sermon uh, to his congregation, basically saying that, I guess, you know, at, at his era, the church had just started to open, basically, uh, communal hospitality that they would offer to the poor. And he was saying, you know, well and good. But he said, if you think that you've, you know, fulfilled your duty by donating to the church so that the church can, as an institution, take care of the poor, then you're very much mistaken because each of you should have, at his time, you know, the old traditional Christ room still available in your house if you have the means to do so. Um, So he obviously was seeing, you know, institutional charity as an innovation in his time. And he was worried already that it was going to stifle the giving of personal charity, which of course is, you know, in the United States is what exactly what has happened. Um, But that, but like, but yeah, at the same time, you're right. I mean, here I am saying this and I know, you know, like this is not an easy thing to do in our Mm -hmm. culture. This is almost an impossible thing to do. So we do need that, that network that can make uh, this kind of radical personal charity possible for people who are not perhaps uh, heroic. And I especially like that you point out for people who maybe don't have the health even mm-hmm. to run a typical, if there is such a thing, <laughs> a typical Catholic worker house. So mm-hmm. thanks so much again for, for joining me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you for inviting me. Really appreciate it.